Well, good morning. Man, it's so humbling to be with you this morning. Actually, Camilla and I sneak in uh, probably a couple times over the last few years to worship with you, and uh, we love to visit other churches and worship with other believers in the city and just celebrate what he's doing. Uh, all that Andrew said is, um, well, it, the website is outdated. I think we have 27 grandchildren now, and uh, it could change this afternoon for all we know. You know, you raise kids, and they do their own thing, and uh, then you just try to keep up with them, and it's just a, a great blessing. You need to know, though, that before you is standing someone who is just basking in the bounties of God. I grew up in a very Judeo-Christian home that did not have Christ. And there's great benefits that came out of that because my parents built character into me that was very Christian. Uh, but even as we'll see in our text today, it was without the power of God. And, uh, and so it was really at Cal Poly San Luis that I bumped into this young lady. And um, I would say things that I'd always said, whether it's evolution or whatever, and she would simply say, that's not what the Bible says. And it was so irritating, but I kind of liked her. <laughs> and I was, I had no, I, did, I just saw no need in my life for Christ. And, uh, and it took almost two years of just that constant, gracious working, and then her telling me to read through the Gospel of John one summer. And as I read through the Gospel of John, uh, man, the light bulb came on. I came to my senses. And uh, God gifted me with repentance. And uh, boy, what, a, what an amazing ride it has been since then. We agreed to have four kids when we got married. But God's got a bounty. And uh, he's always the God of more, isn't he? And uh, when I came into this city, two pastors welcomed me in. Steve Perdue, who's now with the Lord in heaven. And Mike Full. And it's been a joy to, to, to just live and serve in this city. And I'm so grateful when God brought Andrew Shea here uh, because uh, he's a multiplier. He just uh, knows how to live well in God's grace and to communicate that grace and not competing. We churches have real problems seeing each other as competitors. And even as Christians sometimes, and what an evil sin. And I'm so, so grateful for what he's done in uh, just continuing to cultivate that. And we have greater inroads into the city now than we've seen for years. During some of those years, the city was trying to shut down home Bible studies. And uh, some of you may have been a part of us going to City Hall and speaking uh, the city has an entirely different disposition right now, which we praise God for, but it's come through a lot of cultivation uh, through Andrew, through our Easter sunrise service, and just different things. And uh, so I'm just so grateful uh, for the place that the church in Huntington Beach is and how we're in this together. I mean, there's too many people that do not know Christ in our city for us to compete. And... Uh, and so I'm just so grateful. Uh, also have some long-term friends that have jumped in here and been a part of you. The Espinoza family lived a few houses down from us and, 
And uh, boy, we are just so much interwoven in our lives. If any of you wonder about God's protection, you just need to talk to our oldest sons and Matt and Dan Espinoza. And you will see God can protect boys and uh, get them into adulthood. Because uh, they're all still living, which is an amazing reality considering some of the choices they made. And, uh, and so it's just a joy to watch all of them. So and through, through Matt, uh, uh, Brock came into our uh, circle and have known Brock and his family for so long. And so that's a blessing. Um, and so uh, Schultz, Andrew Schultz, was the best man in one of our daughter's wedding. And uh, so we're linked in there. Uh, just so much more. Justin and Fallon Unger uh, were an answer to parents' prayers uh, to, for God just to bring someone into our kids' lives that will multiply what we're doing. And uh, boy, they came into our youngest son's life. And uh, mm, it's just been such a multiplier. I, I mean, these people come in and they say the same thing you're saying. But you know, for some reason, sometimes kids need to hear it from somebody else. And uh, so, you know, John would come home and say, well, Justin said this. And the more kids you have, the more you learn that you don't say, yeah, we've been saying that for 15 years. You just say, thank you, Jesus. They finally got it. And, And the whole Unger family has been such a blessing along those lines. Well, we have this common faith, this common unity. We get to work together in a non-competitive environment because of the common work of God that He reveals to us through His Word. We just have this common authority that is such a blessing, isn't it? I mean, what a gift. God's spoken to us, and He's told us things that we would never know, never know. And uh, so that's our great privilege this morning. And so we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, someone will bring one to you. But uh, I encourage you to turn over there electronically in paper. My wife Camilla loves to draw during messages, so she has this humongous Bible that has plenty of drawing room in the column. So I can't wait to see what the picture is this morning uh, from this message. But... uh, The passage that we're in this morning, uh, I didn't really pay attention to what passage it was. I just picked a date that would work for me. And actually, Andrew Garland from Shorelife Church is preaching at Calvary this morning. And, uh, And then I read it, and I thought, oh my, this is really a depressing set of verses. Uh, I mean, you, you can read through these, and all they will do is invoke fear, which we know is not what God would want us to get out of these verses. And so uh, what I want us to do this morning is I want to I read the text, and I'll show you the three main points that just kind of jump out of it for us. Uh, and then I want to put it in its context so that we won't see it as, as just negative or fear-inducing, but see it in the encouraging, uh, enlightening, educational way that God obviously intended them to be. And then we'll walk through some of the details of the verse and we'll end up with a historical example in verses 8 and 9, which is just uh, what we've been singing about, what we've proclaimed through the Lord's Supper 
this morning. And so, uh, so if you don't have, a, have it open to, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you would, uh, jump in there. And let me, let me show you the three main points so that you can notice those as we read through it in just a moment. Uh, the first one is, but mark this, verse 1 and the way it begins there. And if you're one who underlines in your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible, um, you know, I find it helpful to underline these things. Uh, the second one is at the end of verse 5, have nothing to do with them. And the third uh, point comes out of the historical example from the past in verse 9. They will not get very far. And then the end of verse 9, their folly will be clear to everyone. So those are the three points that are going to jump out of this passage for us this morning, I believe. And uh, the first two are commands, and you know, God commands us to do things that we just would not naturally uh, understand and do because it's the pathway into the fullness of the life that He has for us. It's just like we as parents command our kids to do things that they would never figure out and that they would probably would never do without us making them do them because it's the path into life. And so uh, one of the neat things that God does in our lives when we become believers is we, we, we see commands as beautiful, clear instructions of which way to go to enjoy life. We don't see them as, oh, God's trying to hold us, hold us back. No, He's actually trying to move us forward with these commands. And then the last part there, again, is just, a, just showing us how God has always been working in history and how He's working today as well. So let me read through this. Uh, actually, let's pray before we do that, and then I'll read through it, and you can follow along. So let's just ask for God's help here. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your presence with us. Thank you for being able to celebrate and press more into our hearts some of the realities of who you are and who we are because of who you are. And, uh, and so I just thank you for being able to declare some of that already this morning. But God, you're a bountiful God, and you have more for us. You're always the God of more. We want the more this morning. We want you to open our eyes to see wonderful things from you through your word. And let me ask you just to say that little prayer to yourself. God, open my eyes to see wonderful things from this your word today. So just go ahead and usher up that prayer. And maybe you've got some particular experience going on that you just don't know what to do with it. It could be confusing. It could be painful. Would you just ask for God to speak to you into that particular situation, even as we spend this time together? Thank you, Lord, for the things that you're going to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's read the passage here. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, 
abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. And you're probably thinking right now, whoa, this is one of those passages, isn't it? And, uh, and so let me put it in its context for us, because then it makes sense. Then it's not just a downer. Uh, and so go back to uh, the way the book begins in the first verse of the first chapter, which uh, your pastor Andrew went through a few weeks ago. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing statement. According to the promise of the life in Christ Jesus. And, and that's the whole point of this entire book. And how do you experience the promise of life in Christ Jesus? Through sound teaching. Through sound teaching. I mean, that's the reason God has spoken so clearly. That's the purpose of the Spirit within our lives, is to help us to live in a holiness that is filled only with life. That's what Jesus talked about so much. That's why we love John 3.16, right? For God so loved us, He loves all the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but what? Finish it with me but would have everlasting life. Now, Jesus encountered this personally, and he elaborated that unfortunately there's an enemy that doesn't want us to have that life. So in John 10.10, he says, the thief, there is a thief. There is one who wants to come and steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so there's this battle for our souls, for our well-being. And there's the battle for the souls and well-being of all people. And there's the thief. There's the evil one who wants to keep us stuck in, in, in not experiencing the life. And then there's Christ who has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Now, at the very end of chapter 2, and... Uh, he, uh, Paul puts it in these terms, that people might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so Paul says you need to understand that people as they come into this world because of their sin nature, they are actually 
living in the kingdom of Satan and in darkness, and, and, uh, and, and Satan wants them to live out his will for their lives. And, and that's just the natural state of people. And thus, this great calling upon our lives that you went through last week, uh, where, verse 24, the Lord's bondservants must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so this great mission that we are on to live the gospel and to proclaim the gospel, and God uses that to uh, help people get the light bulb turned on, come to their senses as he gives them the gift of repentance, and man, they break free. They break free. They don't have to live according to the will of themselves or the will of Satan. They get to live as bondservants of Christ. Now, I spent a little over six years in the military. In the last three years, I was uh, in special forces, and I had an A-team. That's about 10 guys uh, who are trained to do various things. One of the things is, is to be able to go in behind enemy lines and to help someone who is held captive get out of that bondage, get out of that place into freedom. When I read this verse, that's what I see. That's what I see. I see that we as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ are on a mission to set the captives free. Now, people are not the enemy. Let's be clear on that. They're held captive by the enemy. And we're on this mission to do that. Now, in the military, we are trained to do a lot of preparation before we go on a mission because there's a lot at stake. And so we're trained in a very specific way on how to... Um, how to do all the planning and a very set way that we do this. And so uh, one, here's, here's a copy out of one of the training manuals, out of one of our uh, army manuals that describe that. And if you look at that, you'll notice that what's the first thing that we deal with when we're giving and looking at a mission and how to be uh, faithful to it? What's the first thing there? It has everything to do with the enemy. It has everything to do with the hardness of what you might experience. And then it gets to the mission. Now, 2 Timothy here switched it around and we have the mission. But, but what do we have going on in three, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 that we just read? We have Paul telling us about the enemy, telling us about what we'll experience. Because one of the most destructive things to a Christian's life is to walk into the world and think, well, God's with me. I'm always going to have victory. Nothing terrible is going to happen to me. That'll suck the wind out of our sails. It will cause us to have a wrong view of who God is. And so what is, what is the Spirit of God doing through Paul here? He's saying, don't be naive understand what the enemy is, understand how he functions, understand his characteristics, and then he's going to end it, but always know who wins. 
always know who is. So that's, that's how these verses fit into this. It's to help us to be really honest. Did you get the feeling Paul was being honest here? I mean, that's quite the list, isn't it? He's just being really, really honest. And where is he as he pens this? He's in a Roman prison, hoping that someone would bring him some warm clothing, and he's going to have his life taken from him. He knew something about the kinds of people. In fact, I wonder if, as we read through that, with each one of these descriptions, somebody popped into his head. And so, that's the point of these verses, is for us not to be naive and not be surprised when terrible things happen and people come against us. It's part of the deal of living in this world. It's part of the, just the deal of living on mission. And so let's look quickly through these verses and the description that we have here. Um, so verse 1, realize this, mark this, know this. Uh, it's the idea, put this into your brain. Create a cubbyhole in your brain. That terrible, in the last days, terrible times will come. There will be terrible times in the last days. What are the last days? The last days are from when Christ ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1 to when he will return to wrap this whole thing up. Uh, Peter makes that very clear in his message in Acts chapter 2. And so these have been going on for what? 2,000 years now. And so during this time, just know there will be terrible times. Now, it doesn't mean that all the time it's terrible. I mean, we can say thank you, Jesus, for that, can't we? Uh, there's some really sweet, just overwhelmingly good times like this morning. And we enjoy so many of them in America. We have a Ukrainian family living with us right now who are refugees from the Ukraine. There's terrible times going on in the Ukraine. We don't know what that's like. And, and so, so Paul says, you know, they will, there will be these terrible times, these dangerous times, these times that will cause you to experience great pain and they may even take your life. So just don't be caught off guard by that. And interestingly, he wants to deal with a particular terrible time. He's not talking about health issues, as terrible as that can be. He's not talking about, you know, the floods and whole families getting swept to their death. He's not talking about those. He's talking about terrible times that come from people who are adversarial to God and the gospel, even though they may say something different. And so he gives us a description of who they are in verses 2 down through verse 5. And if you will, uh, in 2, he begins with the general characteristics, and 4, he ends with the general characteristics. And, and so I just call this the terrible sandwich. So here's the bread on both sides of this Sandwich. People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. And then at the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In other words, these are people who their center of gravity is themselves. 
And the word for love is the word philo. So it's not agape. There's nothing sacrificial in any of this. And these are people who just have a great affection for themselves. Everything is about themselves. Everything should revolve around themselves. And boy, do we live in a culture that emphasizes this today. Look within yourself, find yourself, do all this self-stuff. And, and of course, lovers of, of themselves and lovers of money, are, those are two peas in a pod, are they not? And then on the other side, he wraps it up by saying lovers of pleasure, and then the contrast, rather than lovers of God. And uh, in our affluent culture today, it's easy to become a lover of pleasure. Whatever makes you feel good. You deserve a break today. And on and on, our culture goes on, and certainly the internet and what we carry in our pockets makes this so much easier and more destructive. I mean, you can just hole up in a room with your phone and get all kinds of pleasures that orient around yourself being the center of gravity. And we know the great redemptive work of God is, is He comes down and He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He loved us sacrificially, and, and He gives us this gift of repentance. We come to our senses, we escape the devil, and now our center of gravity is around Him. And thus we love God with what? All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We grow in that. And we love our neighbors as ourselves. Our center of gravity for followers of Christ is entirely different. And and so it's just one of those key distinctions. But with false teachers, it's all about themselves. And so inside the two pieces of bread here, we have quite a list, 15 different flavors of how lovers of self are going to come out, how we're going to taste their lives, how we're going to experience them. Let's walk through it pretty quickly here. They're boastful and proud. Uh, They just know that they are better than everybody else. They are more deserving than everybody else. They'll tell you, they'll boast about it, but it comes out of a phenomenally proud heart. They are thus abusive. The word is blasphemos. (laughs) They will blaspheme other people. They will say whatever they want to say because if they can beat everybody else down, they feel like it makes them look good. They're disobedient to their parents. Now parents, and those of you with young children, do not freak out on this statement just yet because it seems like all of them come in with a bent You know, their center of gravity is themselves, is it not? I mean, who of us had to teach our children to lie? Who had to teach them not to like being in a car seat? Not being able to find both their shoes? I mean, we don't don't have to teach them that stuff. Um, But this is a settled-in state as they reach into maturity of disobedience to parents They're ungrateful. That may have a specific reference, actually, towards parents. They're unholy. 
They hold nothing as sacred, nothing as set apart. Everything is for them. Without love, that's a specific term that means without the natural affections for family. Unforgiving, they will not be reconciled. They would refuse any agreements. It's their way or the highway. Slanderous, that's the word diabolus that is used of the devil in verse 28 above, 26 above. Without self-control, with any, without any power over themselves. Now here's a pretty graphic picture for you. When this word is used of our bowels, it means someone is incontinent. These are just incontinent people. And they leave their stink and mess all over the people that they come in contact with. Hope that's not too graphic, but... You know, that's just kind of the way it is with these people. Brutal. They're fierce. They're untamed. They're wild animals. These are the sharks. Not lovers of the good. They have no affection for anything good. Things that are just by nature good. And good for all people. Not with them treacherous, literally betrayers. They set up others for failure. They entrap others. They're rash and reckless. They lack regard for others and their property. They just use and abuse people. They're conceited. They're puffed up. They're like balloons. All air, no reality. Now, many of these... And and by the way, aren't we grateful that few people have all these qualities? There are some. There are some. And it's one thing for people like this who know they don't know God, know they're adversarial to God, but what Paul goes on to say is what's even more deceptive is those having a form of godliness but denying its power. Even more damaging are people who put God's name over this behavior. And you might think of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Those religious leaders are present with us today. Or you might think of parents in some of the horrible, evil homes where they have invoked the name of God and done all kinds of evil to their children. Uh, There's just nothing worse than putting the name of God over that which is antithetical to who he is and what he does, but that is what religious leaders do. And so what does Paul say about these people? Have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Now, sometimes you don't have a choice. Paul's in prison. He didn't have a lot of choice about this deal. And it wasn't the only time. Um... I mean, how many times did he go into a place and proclaim the gospel, and they threw him out of the city, they beat him and thought he was dead, they gave him all kinds of stripes, they put him in stocks, uh, I mean, all kinds of things. So, so sometimes you have no choice. But if you have a choice, what does God tell us? Stay away from them. Don't think 
that somehow you're going to be able to survive this. Do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I mean, think about it this way. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan, literally using these terms down here, wormed his way into Eve and Adam's life by saying what? You should be lovers of yourself more than lovers of God. And, uh, you know, a few millenniums later, uh, God caused the writer of the book of Psalms to begin the book of Psalms with these words, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the mockers. Don't think it won't get to you. It will get to you. Rather, delight in the law of the Lord and in your, His law, meditate day and night. And what? You'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth just the right fruit in just the right season. And then Jesus, a couple millenniums later than that, I mean, as He sent the disciples out, He said, if you come to a home and they don't give you a blessing, just don't go there. Find the places where people are receptive to me. Because there's wolves out there. I'm sending you out right in the midst of them. Don't think that you can deal with a wolf. They'll eat you alive. And here in this book, Timothy is saying, uh, you know, after the days of Jesus, uh, he's just saying the same thing. I mean, he used it gangrene as the illustration in the passage you were in last week. What do you do with gangrene? You cut it off. You cut it off. And I'm sure many of you who have been believers for very long and in the church, people's names come to mind who were on fire with Jesus, and now they're nowhere close. What happened? They violated this passage. They thought they could take it. And it never happens in one big fell swoop. It just eats away, eats away, eats away. And their center of gravity moves away from God and moves away from loving people, moves away from God's Word having the authority in their lives, and it just gets eaten away, and they end up in such a grievous, sad position, isn't it? I mean, you just grieve over the people that has happened to. And so he says here, have nothing to do with them. And he goes on and describes them as they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are, all, and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Now, you may be wondering how I'm going to deal with this passage in this day and age in which we live. And so I thought I would just wait and let Andrew deal with it when he gets back. He'll be well rested up from his Sabbath and everything. <laughs> no. Well, let's take a stab at this. Uh, first of all, let me just say, let's look at the, the, the qualities of this person uh, before we just look at how they're women. And what are the qualities of these people? They're loaded down with sins. They're loaded down with sins. 
not dealing with our sins, unconfessed sin, hidden sin, is like having an autoimmune disorder. It just makes you susceptible to false teaching that comes along. Uh, oftentimes because you're just looking for some kind of an escape. And, and so, man, keep short accounts of your sin. You're going to sin. That's the beauty of heaven. Finally. <laughs> I'm not going to have to go to some other believer and say, I blew it here. Keep short accounts of your sin. It, it just declines your ability to respond to God's truth and makes you very susceptible to false teaching. And so they're, uh, they're loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Um, I, mean, I mean, we could go through so many historical examples. David's probably the most ob- obvious one. One sin, if it's not dealt with, always leads to another sin, which always leads to another sin, which always leads to another sin, and it is always in a declining way. And the only way to break it is to come clean and agree with God about your sin, uh, repent of it, and accept His forgiveness and love, and get your sinner gravity back on Him. who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Interestingly, this is a characteristic of in verse 25 of the previous chapter of uh, God grants repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. These are people who won't put their stake in the ground and say, live or die, Christ Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. And the Scriptures are His voice to me. These are people who are always learning. They act like they're hungry. They act like they're learning. They act like all that. But they will not just put the stake in the ground and say, Jesus died for my sins. I'm free in Him. That's what we proclaimed through the bread and the cup this morning, right? They just won't put their stake down and and say, come hell or high water, I will live and die for Christ. And so they're just kind of wandering out there, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Well, this probably were an actual situation in the church at Ephesus that Paul's talking about here, where false teachers were actually coming in to homes with women, because typically that's tied up with false teaching and was actually worming their way in. Uh, One of the uh, other translations says, they creep their way in. This is the original creeps. They're just false teachers. There's nothing more creepy than a false teacher. And so they worm their way into homes. But, um, But you can see very clearly, he's not just addressing women here, because look at the example in verse 8. He addresses two men, and he addresses them by name. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, who as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. 
Now, who are these two dudes? We had fun around our table this uh, week. Uh, we have a couple of adult kids at home. And uh, I read this passage, and I said, so tell me who Jonas and Jambres are. And we had a lot of fun with this one. Is, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Finally, someone said, are they mentioned in the Bible? Well, yes, right here, but no place else. They are not mentioned anyplace else. What Paul is doing here is he's taking uh, these two guys who are mentioned in the Jewish writings and even in the Roman writings of his day, and these two are the names put upon two of the magicians in Pharaoh's court that came up against Moses. So he's just making a very relevant application here. And, uh, and, and so let me just read to you a couple of one of these encounters in Exodus chapter 7 that this would be referring back to. In Exodus 7, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, say, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to, the, came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded them. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Okay, so far so good. Just exactly what the Lord said. They did, and it worked. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men, Jonas and Jambres, and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. I mean, you talk about a terrible time. You just do what the Lord says. You throw your staff down, it becomes a snake. Pharaoh comes in, calls his magicians to these guys, uh, the two guys named here, uh, and they do the same thing. Now what do you do? God didn't tell you what to do when this happens. And I mean, their staffs look like Aaron's staff. They had a lot of the same appearances. What do you do? I, I just wonder how long this lasted. That Moses and Aaron saying, ooh, now what do we do? This is one of those terrible times. And the reason God didn't tell them what to do is because God was going to take care of this part. He didn't need them to do anything. And so what, this is what the next phrase says. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. <laughs> his staff just came along and his snakes ate up their snakes. That's what God alone can do. And, and the power struggle goes on, doesn't it, with these two guys. Finally, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, Pharaoh won't listen to him. And so the ultimate act is Pharaoh and his army follow them through the Red Sea, right? And Moses lifts up his staff. The whole sea comes back together and they all die. And so what does it tell us here in 2 Timothy he says, but they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Time always tells. God always shows up. And he shows his superiority 
over every false teacher, every power monger that is in the world. Uh, it will always become clear. Now, often not as quickly as we want, but it will always, always, always become clear. Well, we began by asking the Lord to show us some things here. And let me just pull those three last points back up here for us. Uh, just put this way of thinking in your heads. Know that terrible times are going to come. Don't get thrown off by them. Just know that. And when you come across someone that meets these qualities, these characteristics, no matter how charismatic, no matter how much you want to latch on to something they're saying, because it feels like it'll fill a hole in your heart or it'll, it'll overcome something that you've done in your past, do not fall for it. Have nothing to do with them. And then I just put the last point there in more of a positive way. God will show up and He will reveal, as it says here, that they are filled with folly. Amen? Amen. Well, let me give you a moment just to personally respond here to the Lord in whatever's going on in your life. And so would you just uh, respond to Him in gratefulness maybe for His power, for His might, for how He is with you, how He's greater. But also, just respond, Lord, help me to remember that terrible times are going to come. Don't let that throw me off. Help me to live discerningly and be free. Just be free to have nothing to do with people like this. I'm not better than Adam and Eve. I'm not better than other people through history. I am susceptible. I am susceptible. And I'll trust you to show yourself strong on my behalf and to reveal their folly. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you how you take a word that's been proclaimed millions of times down through the years and you make it specifically applicable to each of us this morning. Thank you for the ability to respond to you in great freedom so that we might experience more of the life abundant that you have for us. Lord, just continue to bring our hearts in responsiveness to you according to your word this morning. And it's in the name of Christ we pray.